Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to you all, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Please pray with me. Again, loving Father, we we come to you to be taught. We believe that your word is living and active and more powerful than a double-edged sword, more powerful than the sword that Peter swung in the garden. We pray that you would use your word to cut to our hearts today. We pray that we might know your word, might know your truth, that we might know your love and love you in return. Please, Father, teach us now, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Fake news is not a term that many people used 18 months ago, but it's now seen as a great threat to meaningful debate and the truth. Donald Trump may have coined the phrase and established fake media news awards, but fake news has been around for centuries. We used to call it propaganda. Adolf Hitler and Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, both used this tactic to climb to power and to hold on to power. Fake news is a means of self-promotion and self-protection. Governments and powerful individuals have used information and misinformation as a weapon for millennia. They have used it to boost support and to discredit opponents. It seems that we are prone to not wanting the truth to get in the way of a good story. In 33 BC, Octavian got hold of a document which he claimed was the last will and testament of Mark Antony. And whether it was or it wasn't, we may never know. However, Octavian was able to convince the Senate that Antony was a traitor. And he used the Senate to convince the people that Antony was a traitor. And that he had in mind to give large tracts of the Roman Empire to Cleopatra's children. The rest, as they say, is history. Men with power seeking to orchestrate the events for their own selfish ends. Are they creators of history or manipulators of history? Do we create our own fake news at times? On a much smaller scale, of course. It wasn't a lie, just another way of recounting the facts. You have to see it from my point of view. Last week we saw Jesus boldly walk towards his captors. Having determined to do the Father's will, having defied the temptation to choose another way, Jesus hands himself over to be arrested. He is now dragged to the high priest Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish tribunal. This Jewish court of justice in Jerusalem comprised of 71 men. But because they were living under Roman rule, they cannot themselves carry out the planned execution. So what we see here is in effect a pre-trial hearing. It's being carried out in the middle of the night under the cloak of darkness. But the darkness doesn't hide the other darkness, the darkness of their motives and the darkness of their hearts. This pre-trial hearing is to ascertain if there is sufficient evidence to proceed. But a lack of evidence is not going to deter them. Their murderous intent, their resolve to eliminate Jesus, will not be shaken. Unlike the resolve 
of Jesus' runaway friends. A lack of evidence isn't going to get in their way. As you can see from verses 55 and 60, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence. They were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, even though they had many false witnesses. They are looking for false evidence from false witnesses in an attempt to create fake news that would somehow compel Pilate to do their dirty work for them. And eventually two men come forward who agree and they declare, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Which is a slight misquote perhaps of what Jesus is recorded as saying in, in John 2.19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. For us with hindsight, the benefit of hindsight, we know it's an obvious reference to his body and not the physical temple. But would the physical temple have been able to withstand the word of the Son of God? Surely he could have destroyed it and rebuilt it in three days. But Jesus is no destroyer. He is the creator. He is the giver of life. At this point, Jesus remained silent. This manipulated allegation is not worth answering. It is not worthy of a response. The high priest wants him to admit that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. So he puts Jesus on oath. Jesus' reply in the first instance is, you have said so. Those are not the words, not the admission that Caiaphas is looking for. But when Jesus extends his answer, extends his response and makes reference to Psalm 110 and to Daniel 7 saying that he indeed is the son of man so here we have it, uh, the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one so it would have been sitting at the right hand of the ancient of days Caiaphas has apoplexy. He goes berserk. He rips his gowns and he declares he has spoken blasphemy. At this point Jesus is staking his life on the belief that God will vindicate him. He is staking his life on the promise of God, the word of God, the truth of God. Whilst Caiaphas has brought forth false witnesses, Jesus declares that God has and will bear witness on his behalf. He has spoken blasphemy and together they pronounce the death sentence, even though they have no authority to do so. Caiaphas, the anointed high priest, the little Messiah, who was supposed to be representing God's interest, has failed. 
he has betrayed the living God. It is his authority, his status, his interest that he's holding close to his heart. Let's just pause for a few moments and take a step back and think about what is going on here. Last week we were thinking about four words. Four words that can change the world. Four words that can change our relationships. Four words that can change our actions. Your will be done. Your will be done. And as we saw last week, on one level, it is easy to to determine what God's will is. God is love. So whatever is truly loving is God's will. God doesn't lie. So whatever is truthful, truly truthful, is God's will. But as we also observed last week, on another level, discerning God's will is exceedingly complex when we don't have the benefit of hindsight. In the instant, sometimes it's really difficult to comprehend what God's will is. But if we're looking at this for the first time, surely we would say this cannot be God's will. As falsehood and evil seem to be reigning supreme. Yet we know, don't we, that God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. God is able to use even this situation to fulfill his plan. Like Jesus, we live in a broken and corrupt world. So like Jesus, let us pursue truth and love on a daily basis, regardless of what situation we're put in. What else is happening here? Well, prophecy is being fulfilled again. Jesus under oath is declaring that he is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will be welcomed into the very presence of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. All of this is confirming God's judgment on the temple. God's judgment on the leaders. In effect, they are the ones who are destroying the temple. And they are seeking to put to death God's true temple, his son Jesus. Their judgment of Jesus is false. Their judgment of God's will is false. They continue to be motivated by self-promotion and self-protection. Like Octavian before them, they are seeking to bolster their own position, to bolster their own power, to bolster their own influence, whilst at the same time discrediting this man Jesus through false accusations and manipulation. Jesus is charged with blasphemy, but it is the leaders who are showing contempt and lack of reverence for the name of God. 
Again, they refuse to acknowledge the true identity of the one who is standing before them. They have, again, disregarded the truth, the plain truth, that they have witnessed with their own eyes. They are again, as they had before in the temple, when Jesus healed the blind and the lame, just earlier in the week, they have again denied the work of God. Like their forefathers, they will not allow their hearts to be softened. Like their forefathers, they will maintain rigid control, a rigid grip on the status quo that they have established at the expense of doing God's will. It seems as though there is no grace evident here. Grace never calls wrong right, as they have done. If wrong were right, grace wouldn't be necessary. Truth and love are inextricably bound together. And they have denied truth. And they have denied love. They have carried out a verbal assault on the truth and now they turn to a physical assault on the one who is love personified. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? This is personal. This is personal. They each come forward to hit and mock. They each display their contempt for Jesus through violence. Rejection is personal. This rejection of God's Son is very personal. It is always personal when we're dealing with Jesus. It cannot be otherwise. Meanwhile, out in the courtyard, Peter is exercising what we might refer to as poor judgment. Peter has done his best in the garden, but his best, again, hasn't been good enough. He must have sensed that that he'd let Jesus down. Because tired and frightened, unlike the others, he does the right thing. He's still following Jesus. But perhaps he's done the right thing for the wrong reason. Is it just wounded pride that is driving him? Or perhaps he was doing the wrong thing, walking straight into a trap for the right reason, dogged loyalty. Who knows? Who knows? Like Jesus in Gethsemane, Peter has three opportunities to resist temptation. He has three opportunities to speak the truth. 
a servant girl, an eyewitness, not a false witness, an eyewitness, not a false witness, confronts him. You were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denies it. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Having denied, lied, disowned, whatever you want to call it, he moves to the gateway. Is he too now seeking the cover of darkness? Another eyewitness, not a false witness, says to those gathered, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. This time, the denial is more forceful. He says with an oath, I don't know the man. He lies under oath. Jesus had been placed under oath by Caiaphas. And there were no thoughts of self-preservation. No thoughts of denying his father. Jesus doesn't deny the truth. For the truth confirms his love of the father. Even in this situation. Then comes the third and more stringent denial from Peter. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And then those heart-wrenching words. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Denying Jesus is a horrific thing. But I suspect we've all done it. Denial attempts to mask our fears. Our fear of measuring up in the sight of those around us. But this isn't a fear that we should ever have. Because in our own strength, we will never be able to measure up to God's expectations. But for those who have faith in Jesus, he has already measured up for us. Denial attempts to mask our fear. Our fear of rejection. But once we've allowed God to love us, we will never be rejected by the one who has given his all for us. The scriptures say nothing can snatch us from his hand. Denial attempts to mask our fear, perhaps our fear of physical harm, Fear is natural. Faith is supernatural. But I wonder what you might consider the opposite of fear to be. Perhaps courage? Perhaps courage? 
Let's jump forward. What does Jesus seek from Peter a few days later after his resurrection on the beach in Galilee? In the light of Peter's fear-filled denial, Jesus doesn't seek courage and bravery from Peter to face the future. He doesn't say to him, will you be courageous, Pete? Will you be brave now? Will you march forward? What does he ask him? Not for bravery and courage, but for love. Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's denial is also personal, deeply personal. Peter's denial doesn't extend to a physical attack like the Sanhedrin, but it is nonetheless personal. Peter had been struck to the heart by his failure, his weakness, his denial, and he went outside and wept. Wept bitterly. Our denials of Jesus are always personal, whether we acknowledge that or not, whether we realise it or not. Praise be to God that grace is also personal. We panic, but God stays true to his plan. There is no panic in heaven. God is never anxious or confused. He is not dismayed or distracted by Peter's panic. And he's not dismayed or distracted by our panic. God meets us where we are. We are fearful, we run, we deny in an attempt to cover up our fear and our shame. Like our first mum and dad, Adam and Eve, we try to cover up with flimsy leaves, but ultimately they are useless. We are fearful, but God is present in love. We feel alienated and alone. But he has promised never to leave us. And his love draws us near. Peter's denial is shocking and concrete. It's a picture of our need of grace. Our need of grace at the cross and our need of grace beyond the cross. The life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are necessary because we are Peter. Insert your name here in this text. God meets us where we are, just as he met Peter. He comes to us in our fear. 
He draws us near when we're separated. He pursues us when we wander. When we sin, he comes with conviction and forgiveness. He comes to us at the moment of our salvation and he comes to us again and again and again and again, more than 70 times 7, as we journey from the now to the not yet. He sits with us wherever we are in our frailty and our angst. He sits with us and loves us drawing out weak love for him and sending us on our way to do his work in his strength the work he has chosen us to do he doesn't wait for us to come to him he comes to us this is a way of grace this is God's personal grace to you let's pray loving father we marvel at what you have done and what you continue to do in spite of our weakness and our sinfulness our denials our wanderings thank you that we are Peter that we are loved and that we are called to love Please, Heavenly Father, help us to truly be your loving children this week. For we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.